Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Recently, I was asked to write about the gospel. Uh, the, the prompt was something like this. What is the gospel? What is your heart for the good news you want to share with others? Now, my impulsive response to that, to that question is always a really hearty, Jesus Christ is Lord, followed by a little self-congratulatory fist pump. Yes, nailed. Um, but I do realize that I've got to back into that declaration. Most folks don't know who Jesus is. And I think even fewer, fewer folks have any concept of what a Lord might be. And so my next move, after my eruptive Jesus Christ is Lord, I shared the story of Soichi Yokoi. Uh, Yokoi was the last Japanese soldier to surrender during World War II, and he did so in January of 1972. That's 26 years after the end of the war. In 1944, Yokoi's battalion was routed when allies invaded Guam. Yokoi and 10 of his comrades retreated into the jungles, where they held fast, refusing to surrender. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, Initially, the holdouts survived by eating locals' cattle. But as their numbers shrank and the likelihood of, their dis of discovery grew, they retreated into increasingly remote sections of the island, living in caves or makeshift underground shelters and dining on coconuts, papaya, shrimp, frogs, toads, eels, and rats. Yokoi eventually parted ways with his companions, who either surrendered, fell victim to enemy soldiers on patrol, or died as a, result, as a result of their Spartan lifestyle. Yokoi stayed in sporadic contact with two stragglers, but after they died during flooding in 1964, he spent his last eight years in hiding in total isolation. In 1972, Yokoi was discovered by two fishermen who spotted Yokoi check, uh, checking his fishing traps. They approached him, and Yokoi charged him with a spear. Uh, but the fisherman easily overpowered him in his weakened state. Yokoi was repatriated to Japan, uh, and there he revealed that he had received several pamphlets that had been dropped on the jungles that had declared the end of the war, but he had assumed that they were American propaganda. Yokoi describes his motivation. He says, We Japanese soldiers were told to prefer death to, to the disgrace of getting captured alive. I have returned with, my, with the rifle the emperor gave me, and I am sorry that I could not serve him to my satisfaction. Eventually, Yokoi would run for parliament, successfully, write a best-selling book about his experience, but he never really settled into modern life. He always longed for Guam. He would frequently return to Guam before dying in 1997 at the age of 82. Now, when I, think of Yokoi, when I think of the gospel, I think of the story of Yokoi, because his story is ripe with allegory about the challenges of witnessing to the gospel. Here we have a human being driven by personal convictions, so entrenched in his beliefs about himself and the way the world works that he'd rather live a life of depravity and loss 
then submit to the reality that the war he fought was lost. If we can see the allegory in Yokoi's story, some questions press against us. Ought we to coax Yokoi off the island and into the abundant life? Is it our place? If so, how? How is witness even possible in a world of island dwellers like Yokoi? Friends, this is Ascension Sunday, and I want to reflect, I want for all of us to reflect on the gospel and our call to disciple, to be witnesses to the good news that Jesus has ascended and he is now Lord. The gospel is a declaration, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as witnesses of Jesus' lordship, we must embody the new creation ushered in by Jesus' lordship. We must live a life, we must live the life that he died to give to us. Our witnesses to his kingdom, characterized by his peace, his mercy, and his grace. But first we must admit that just as Yokoi rejected the good news that World War II had ended, we too reject the gospel ourselves, either in parts of us or as the whole. As we witness, we must be aware that our own fallen of we must be aware of our own fallen territories and witness from the liberated ones. In the ascension of the Lord, we are equipped with the fuel for faith that empowers the mechanism of witness. But only when we live like Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father can we actually be witnesses. Now, if witness begins with the proclamation of Jesus' lordship demonstrated in the, in the ascension, let's explore some of the biblical witness of the ascension and how it fueled the apostles' witness because the apostles were fueled by the ascension. Luke records the ascension twice, once at the beginning or once at the end of his gospel and here at the beginning of the book of Acts. For Luke, Jesus' ascension was crucial to understanding who Jesus is. Jesus, for Luke, was not just a man born to a virgin, although that would have been intriguing enough for Luke, the physician. He was not just an authoritative teacher who cared for and healed people. Jesus didn't just suffer in a profound mishandling of justice at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Jesus didn't just die on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all humans. He didn't just resurrect, inviting humans to, to abundant life with the Father and promising our own resurrection. No, for Luke, Jesus, who was and did all of these things, ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is this particular ascended Jesus in which we can place our hope, because he who was taken up into heaven will come again the same way they saw him go up. The ascension was Jesus' heavenly coronation, a transition from the earthly Messiah to the heavenly king. The apostles took Jesus' ascension as their theological foundation, fortifying their ministries. Jesus' situation at the right hand of the Father was first prophesied in Psalm 110. Luke points out that Jesus applied this psalm to himself when Jesus said, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, 
thus calls the Messiah Lord. How is he his son? The writer of Hebrews argues similarly. This is an argument by kind of degree that the writer of Hebrews and that Jesus takes as well. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? And again, the writer of Hebrews says this, uh, we have seen such a priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. So Luke, the psalmist, and the writer of Hebrews offer an interpretation of the ascension. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in honor, power, and glory, making him greater than David, greater than the angels, and greater than the priesthood. The ascension is the declaration of Jesus' greatness. Peter uses similar language to announce Jesus' lordship in his sermon in Acts. At Pentecost, Peter recalls Jesus' words, For David did not send into the heavens, or, sorry, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Again, just before St. Stephen dies, he describes an emboldening vision of Christ. He looks up and, and says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In their epistles, Peter and Paul describe Jesus' position. First, Paul, says, Paul asks in Romans, If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Paul assures us that in the midst of trials, we can place our hope of salvation in this ascended Christ because he is the one who has the authority to, to be with us in our trials. Peter picks up on this same line of arguing in his epistle. In Peter's understanding of the ascension, it's similar to Paul's, and he says this. Uh, he says that we can trust in our baptism because Jesus ascended. Right? So our baptism has, has power in our lives because of the ascension. He said, Peter says this, Peter, or, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal from, of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of, Je of Jesus Christ who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The later witness of the, of the apostles is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father so that we are, so we can be fueled with, uh, so we can live lives fueled and emboldened by his ascension, shaped by his goodness and grace. Jesus' ascension has a direct impact in our, in our lives because it, it's, it's, it gives us this fuel to, to push through even when things are hard. But here, in Acts 1, the apostles were still uncertain about the kind of king Jesus was. They had hoped for a military, revolutionary Messiah. As one commentator explains, they expected Jesus as God's anointed king to usher in the restoration to which many Jews looked forward and of which Jesus himself had spoken. They had thought that, a, that an ascended Messiah had even more power to restore Israel. So in Acts 1-7, Jesus begins to correct their revolutionary military expectations by describing what does not and what does belong to them. They are not to know when God the Father will restore Israel. 
This takes the revolution out of the apostles' hands. Instead, Jesus gives them and us something else to do. Jesus' revolution repositions disciples from militant insurrectionists to witnesses. Instead of overthrowing Rome, Jesus calls his apostles to tell the whole world that it has a new king. Instead of declaring war, Jesus sends his disciples out to declare peace. The king is on his throne. There is no reason to recapture Israel. The messianic mission has passed from a military campaign to a storytelling campaign. Instead of swords, they're armed with the assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord. This creates a momentarily paralyzing cognitive dissonance in the apostles. Their internal reality doesn't match the external reality. Jesus was and wasn't the the Messiah that they had hoped for. And so after the ascension, they stand staring into the sky thinking, he's going to get some heavenly backup. We'll wait. And this is the stuff of the human heart, isn't it? The apostles' paralysis was broken by the words of an angel. But what will break our paralysis? We know the need for witness, but we pause. We stare up into the sky expecting what? For Jesus to win the next election? A windfall of money so that we can feed the needy? Expecting to be well in mind and body? With the apostles, we hear the call of the Lord, but our expectations of ourselves and how the world works paralyze us into waiting. How then do we overcome our, our reluctance to witness? Uh, we can start by understanding what Jesus actually means when he says witness. Witness is all over the Old Testament. Israel was called to be a reflection first of the holiness of God through their obedience to the law. But they were, also they were also called to be witnesses to the Lord's salvation. In Isaiah 43 and 44, Yahweh rehearses his salvation with Israel and calls them to be witnesses of that salvation. Witness then in the Old Testament is both performative, they were, they were called to perform God's holiness, and declarative, they were called to declare God's salvation. Israel is called to obey the law, witnessing to God's holiness, and Israel is called to proclaim to the nations the salvation of Yahweh. New Testament witness is very similar to this. Throughout the book of Acts, witness just describes the apostles' account of Jesus' life. When Peter witnesses in his first sermon at Pentecost, he says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He's telling God's story here. And again, Peter says it at Solomon's portico, but you, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Again, to whom we are witnesses. In the New Testament, as it was in the Old, declarative witness is telling the story of what God, now in Christ, has done. New Testament witness, though, is also performative. Let's think about the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Many of us are familiar with, with, these, with these people. 
Um, there it describes the actions of faithful men and women throughout history. But these, these men and women are described as a great cloud of witnesses, inspiring believers to run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These faithful men and women are witnesses because their faith imitates Jesus' faith. And this faith supplants obedience to the law as performative witness. Instead of offering sacrifices, we, Jesus' disciples, are called to trust in the sacrifice. This is our witness, the fuel from which we live and show the whole world Jesus. The call to witness in the New Testament, then, is both to proclaim and to live within the reality of Jesus' salvation as demonstrated in the ascension. Before we witness, though, we must be aware of the barriers against witnessing. The first, witness, the first barrier against witnessing is in our own hearts. Each of us, when we're honest with ourselves, is a cocktail of sin and salvation, redemption and rejection, sanctification and self-indulgence. So we must self-reflect before we can bear witness. We must be aware of our own sin. We've got to know both individually and corporately as the church where, what are the territories of our hearts that have not been submitted to the Lord. Where is there pain and where has there been healing? If your heart were an island chain, would you know which islands harbored enemy soldiers? When we witness out of these unsubmitted territories, we testify not to the goodness of the Lord, but to the tyranny of the enemy. When we use forceful or manipulative means to tell God's story, we're witnessing from unsubmitted territories of the heart. When Jesus looks more like us than we look like him, we're submitting we're, we're witnessing from unsubmitted territories of our heart. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be sinless in order to witness. It means instead that each of us has a responsibility to regularly be- go before the Lord and ask him to shine light on the shadowlands. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The second barrier to, witness, to witnessing is the hearts of others. Again, we'll start with an apophatic definition, what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that it's our job to be convincing or manipulative. We're not soldiers overtaking enemy territory. It is our job to tell the story well. Not flashily or snappily, but well. To do this, we can ask God to remind us of his salvation. We need to be be bathed in the story of salvation. We can reflect with the Lord in prayer on the mighty works he's done in the lives of his salvation people, including ourselves. Lord, where have you saved me? Thank you for saving me. We can also reflect on the liturgy in which we as the church tell God's story. Knowing that the hearts of others stand as a barrier to witness requires us, though, to know and love our neighbors as real people with complex lives, not just territories to be conquered. 
So Ichiyoko's refusal to surrender, like most, of, like most resistance to the gospel, it was a complex personal experience. We cannot caricature him, creating a person who didn't really exist and diagnosing his resistance based on our own personal biases. We live in a country that forced his beloved emperor to surrender through nuclear attack. Contemporary Western thought sees liberal democracy as the highest good. These are biases that might flavor our, our, our understanding of who Yokoi is, but they do not do justice to Yokoi as a person. Love for God and love for neighbor requires us to check our biases in witness. Where are our biases? Often our temptation is to act like the fishermen who overpowered Yokoi. We want to force resistant hearts to see the goodness of God in spite of their own experiences. But our call is to witness, not to wage war. We're called to tell God's story and trust that the ascended king of heaven will inhabit that story. We're called to be the church. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this, The church is not solely a community that has accepted the lordship of Christ and gathered to worship him. Rather, the church is the community that witnesses to who Christ is through its own life together. We are not called to be a witness, but witnesses. When we, as the church, act like the body of Christ, yes, administering word and sacrament, but also forgiving one another, serving one another, then we proclaim and perform the gospel. This takes time, and it takes patience, and it's messy, and it's ugly sometimes, but it's worth it. The problem with using Soichi Yokoi's story as an allegory for witness is that the story is great at pointing out all of the challenges to witness, uh, but none of the solutions. This is especially because even after his rescue, Yokoi remained unconverted. Right? He went back to Japan and spoke poorly of the weakness of his once great nation. Even in his con- but even in his unconverted state, His story speaks volumes about the anemic faith that bad witness can produce. But if you were hoping for this sermon, or me, or anyone really, uh, to wrap up Yoko's story in a neat bow, outlining a, a missional strategy for witness in five points, you're not gonna get that here. And I would say be suspicious of that anywhere. But I might meander further into an allegory further into this allegory, Yokoi's allegory, and wonder, what would it be like if a group of kind Japanese villagers heard about Yokoi, moved to Guam, and recreated Yokoi's hometown right next to his cave, and lived there, lived with him? What if they met him on hikes and befriended him with, with no agenda but, to, but friendship? Yokoi needed a friend. What if they spoke to him less about how he was wrong to ignore the realities of the modern world and instead told him beautiful stories by firelight about modern Tokyo? Look, they would say to his mind's eye, at the tall towers 
at the lights, at what our people have made. Look how they've dedicated themselves to peace after seeing the terrors of war firsthand. What if they shared food with them? Okonomiyaki and onigiri, steaming bowls of beef sukiyaki. And what if, as his appreciation for modern Tokyo grew, they drew pictures, first in the dirt, and then in a sketch pad, and then showed him photographs and movies? What if all the while they slowly changed the little town that they built next to his cave, modernizing it, making it look more like Tokyo? What if they laughed with him, great big belly laughs as they all shared stories? And what if they erected memorials to Yokoi's fallen comrades and cried his tears? What if they showed Yokoi modern Japan by living it, trusting that it was actually better enough than his cave that someday their friend would want to go home, all the while knowing that he's had it hard? Friends, I don't have a solution to the problems that Yokoi's story creates. But I do have a call to witness, a love for Yokoi and an ascended Savior. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you've invited us into your plan. And we're humbled by the call to witness. We don't always know to do it well. But Lord, on Ascension Sunday, we're reminded that, you, that you've called us to walk out in boldness. Not in boldness in what we've done, but Lord, boldness in what you've done. Help us to be good storytellers, telling your story and trusting in your inhabitants in that story. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.